Previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. If you're spending that much money to see Ja Rule in 2019, he deserves whatever you got coming. From Delaware, almost live, this is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Welcome to episode 29 of the Sports Refuge Podcast, the show where we talk with guests about their connection to sports. I'm your host, Earl Holland. This week's guest, TJ Bryant, has been around the game of football since a very young age. Following the end of his playing days, Bryant transitioned into coaching football with the Salisbury Rhinos youth football team, which allowed him to see his son play. In this episode, Bryant discusses the first time he stepped on a football field and how the game has been a part of his life ever since. Bryant also shares who some of his early football influences were, what it's like coaching football, and some of the lessons he teaches his players that go beyond the game. And now, here's my interview with T.J. Bryant. This week, my guest is T.J. Bryant, the head coach of the 12 and under youth team for the Salisbury Rhinos. How are you doing today, T.J.? I'm fine. I'm fine. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on the Sports Refuge podcast. It's something a little different. Normally, I always talk to people I have a bit of an association with, but just by that one day I stopped by and saw your table raising funds for the Salisbury Rhinos, I thought it'd be very interesting to talk about the team itself, the organization, and get a little insight into how you got interested in playing football and coaching football. So TJ, how did you get an interest in coaching? Well, I guess starting first, how did you fall in love with the sport of football? Oh, man. I was a kid, had a lot of energy, and my mother really didn't know what to do with me. So she saw uh, football signups at the Salvation Army. She took me. Uh, didn't know how to dress. I had on shorts and sandals. And I actually won the race, and I've been hooked since I've been six years old. What was the biggest thrill about playing football? I know you talked about the energy that you had. Uh, teammates, like uh being with your brother, fighting for them, building that bond. I'm friends with a lot of guys I played with when I was six and seven. And, like, looking back at that, like, you know, building those relationships was probably the best part of actually being able to play. To you, is there one particular moment that stands out from your time of playing youth football? Oh, yeah. So, in high school, it might have been my 11th grade year. We were ranked number 17 in the state at Wahai. Uh, we had went six or seven weeks without anybody scoring on us. And that's just one thing. That was a really good football team. That's one of the things that stand out to me about playing. How did you make that transition to coaching football? What was that like? What was the learning curve like, especially going from playing to coaching? It's definitely a big learning curve. It's completely different. Uh, playing football is the easy part, but being having to think, playing practice, call the right plays, just everything like that I'm finding now with uh, coaching that goes into it. I got into it because my son plays Um he trains, and I worked a lot. I missed a lot of his football games, and he came to me um, after his first season and was like, you know, Dad, I'd like you to be around more so we can work on football. So I changed jobs, and I've been coaching ever since. When you talk about that, that the bond between you and your son, especially wanting to see a lot more of his games and being around him, how important was that to you? Uh, it was the most important thing because my kids are going to be adults longer than they're going to be kids. And for him to come up, and say that, that he wanted me there more, it just broke my heart. But at the same time, it motivated me to let me know this is the most important times of their lives. And I just feel good that he, you know, he even wanted me there to be a part of it. Because some kids don't care whether their parents come or not. And it was really a big deal for him. When you first got into coaching, what was the toughest thing that you had to learn, especially 
after all those years of applying it on the field and trying to train those younger players, those same lessons that you learned? My emotion. Well, I was a very emotional player. I was high energy. I just That was just my thing. Being a coach, you represent the organization. You represent kids. So you have to pay attention to how you conduct yourself at all times. So that's the biggest thing is you control my emotion. What do you feel like there was a time where you felt trying to keep track of that emotion almost got the better of you? Yeah, it's happened a couple of times where I felt like maybe something happened on the field and I just was like, you know, the guys are matching my energy. I need to take it up a notch as far as being a coach and stop being so politically correct all the time and just coach football. To you, what is the biggest thing that you've learned as a coach in addition to controlling emotion and things like that, especially, I guess, when it comes to instruction? Oh, man. The biggest thing I learned, I learned this from Coach Vernon DeShield, which is an awesome head coach in our area, is structure. Practice time, what drills you're going to go to that day, what plays you're going to run for that day. Like Everything really has to be organized and just structure, just structure, structure, structure. Growing up, who were some of your favorite football players, players that you tried to pattern yourself after? And what positions did you play in football? Yeah, uh, Barry Sanders. He was just the greatest thing to ever put on football cleats to me. He could move, he could hit a hole, he'd be there, then he'd be gone. And I just thought that was so amazing that nobody could catch the smallest guy on the field and he had guys missing. So I patterned a lot of my game on offense after him. On defense, I played a cornerback, and Charles Woodson is my all-time favorite player. I wore number two from his time at Michigan, so I watched a lot of tape on him and tried to pattern my game after that. Comparing Charles Woodson to maybe Deion Sanders or something like that, how did their games differ? Deion, to me, was more flash, and he would talk you through what he was about to do, and he would go and do it. That's what got him up. Charles Woodson might not say anything to you the whole game, but his game spoke as loud as Deion's without him having to say a word. They just went about it two different ways, but they had the same end result. They're both for great cover corners. For some reason, when we're talking about the corner discussion, I feel like Champ Bailey tends to get a little lost in that discussion. Me being a Redskins fan, I remember Champ Bailey those first couple of years before he ended up getting shipped off to Denver. And, man, I feel like, I guess, in Denver, he blossomed a lot more, especially playing a different system, playing a different coaching structure. And, and it's like, yeah, I feel like he tends to get overlooked pretty often. He does. And I'll give Champ Bailey credit. Charles Woodson, Champ Bailey, Ty Law, Richard Sherman. Like, those are some of the greatest corners of my era, actually, growing up. And Champ Bailey, like I said, he probably does get looked over a lot because he really doesn't say a bunch on the field. He went to Georgia, where it's not a big DB school. And he just kind of came in and did his job, which you want players to be. Dion, you know, talked a little bit. Charles Woodson went to Michigan, won the Heisman, so he had that buzz. But Champ Bailey is definitely one of the greats right up there on their level. He was one of the most technically sound corners to play. As a football coach, what do you think the biggest misconception is, especially about coaching football? That it's easy. And that it's just about football. Because um, some of the relationships I have with these kids now, I get calls from parents about grades, report cards, just checking in on the kids. And it's definitely not easy. And it is deeper than football. And that's what I learned. You're going to coach football and actually be invested in it. You're going to be doing more than coaching football. You're going to coach them at life, life skill, just everything. We talk about money at practice, managing your money, saving stuff like that. So you coach more than football. Talking about saving money, I feel like that's something that a lot of people at a lot of ages don't know about 
there are some grown adults who tend to spend, 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 and don't have the financial means and try to live beyond their means. And I think that's interesting, especially teaching kids at a younger age that it's important to know when to save, know when to treat yourself sometimes, but just don't overdo it, especially when you got responsibilities like bills and things like that. Absolutely. I tell the kids, you don't have a dollar until you have two. You can't afford something unless you can buy it twice. And there's just little stuff I just try to teach them that I picked up uh, along the way of being an adult. Just try to give it to them early so that they're more equipped earlier than me and a bunch of my peers were. Because nobody ever talked to us about money until we were actually in that situation and having to deal with it at the time. I just wanted to give it to the kids early so they, you know, they know about it. It's interesting. Something that I, I noticed, especially with my nieces and nephews a long time ago, is that they didn't know how to balance a checkbook or write a check. And it's like such a weird thing. Cause I remember learning that. And I always knew that try not to overspend. The biggest thing was like a credit card. It took me that whole while to sort of understand the whole process. Like however much you spend, you got to pay it. Also, you actually have that money to spend again. Absolutely. Yeah. And no, checkbooks. We talk about credit card debt, uh, building the credit for the kids. We've gotten to discussions about credit cards, how it's not free money. If you're going to go put $40 in gas in your car and you have it in cash, use your credit card. Send the money off a day or two later just so you know you're building your credit and how important it is. You can buy more with just your signature alone than you actually can with money, you know, dealing with credit and having a good score and stuff like that. So we try to touch on everything, especially the checkbook, because you're right about that. A lot of kids can't balance the checkbook. A lot of kids don't know what a checkbook is. And it's just starting crazy. We're going into a world where, and I always say that with these discussions, they can start out sports and then they can go off in different directions. It's interesting that uh, one of the biggest things I always remember, it's a big life lesson. It's like something that's ingrained me in my brother's head. There's only two things that you have. It's your name and your credit. And when both of them are bad, nobody will give you the benefit of the doubt. That is something that when I think about that whole thing, it's like when you're young, the biggest thing is learning from your mistakes. There's times that people end up having credit cards running out and like, I can't afford it. And then paying off the bill is the biggest thing. And some of those people tend up getting caught in the wave where it just runs over you and you just can never catch up. But, you know, some people can get out of it. And that's an interesting thing. And I feel like that is a huge life lesson because it's better to start early to find out or to understand financial stuff. And I feel like that's a good thing to teach these kids because those situations down the road, that can be the difference between getting a job or not getting a job or getting Absolutely. a car or not getting a car. And I feel like that can be lost among people a lot. Also, along with that, not just being turned down for a car, it can be the difference of getting that car, but having a $250 car payment and having a $450 car payment. You could be paying for the car twice with 23 or 24% interest, as opposed to being able to get something with 0% single-digit interest rate and stuff like that. And even with a credit card, you know, you still end up paying more because it's a percentage on, you know, as opposed to what you would have spent in cash. And so managing that is really important. Like you said, you only have your name and your credit. When both of them are bad, they can be really bad. Just sort of veering back into coaching. I always thought about this, and it's probably maybe the same thing. And I would just like coaching like a rec softball team. And I feel like I wasn't able to get out on the field a lot just because, you know, when you're trying to coach and you're always worried about somebody keeping score and things like that and all these other things, the most helpless feeling can be not being out there in a situation where I feel like, man, I can apply what I know or what I've been able to do to this. But as a coach, you can't do that anymore. You're just hoping that the kids learned from what you've taught them to apply that. And I feel like sometimes that can be the most helpless feeling in the world. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, but also it comes in with trust, knowing the kids and letting them know I'm invested in them. Because once the kids know that I care and I'm committed, they commit. They work hard in the drills. So, yeah, I do feel helpless on the sideline, like not being able to do anything. But I also trust that I've done my job. I've instilled the right things on them as a coach. I've taught them the right techniques. And I trust them to go out there and do that job. And that's kind of how relationships are built, like trust a little bit. They go out and they're successful now. They believe they can do it. I believe they can do it. We're able to try to do more. And so, but it definitely is helpless. And it's it's nerve-wracking, actually. (laughs) When it comes to building your team, I always see it like this. It's like a general in an army. You always have your lieutenants. When it comes to picking and putting together a coaching staff, what is the biggest thing that you look for when you're building your assistants? Communication with the kids, like how they interact with kids, their football knowledge, and their commitment. Because no matter how knowledgeable or how good of a coach they are, if they play in the NFL or do whatever, if they're not willing to commit to it and invest in these kids – I'd rather have the kid that got bad grades in high school and couldn't go to college but was a halfway decent football player, and he's willing to invest in these kids now. Because this is something long-term. We're going to be with these kids for the next two, three years before they move on. So you want to definitely make sure you have the right people. So it was that, and um, like I said, football knowledge, because the drills and everything we work on, the things we want to teach them, we're not just out here running single-back stuff. We're running three and four wides. We're running trips. We're motioning. And so it was just making sure we have the right coaches to teach these kids properly. I always thought, especially as you mentioned the different formations and different plays, that a big knock and a big misconception is, oh, football players aren't very bright or very smart. You have to learn particular plays, and then you have to learn maybe five or six variations of that particular formation and different routes and different things like that. Honestly, I always sort of felt like it was akin to math. It was very tough for me to understand and figure out. But I feel like it's not like you can't go in there and just like have someone who's just big and strong who's there. They have to know fundamentals. They have to know particular routines and and techniques. And I feel like that's something that often gets overlooked a lot. Yeah, absolutely. You can have the biggest kid on the team, but if he can't move or he doesn't know where he's supposed to be, that little guy that like Rudy from the movie and he does his job and his technique is good, he's going to beat you every single time. And getting back to your point about when people say football players aren't smart, and I'm, I'm with you as far as that, it's actually really, really tough. Because you, as a lineman, you may be pulling one direction on one play, going up to another level on another play as a wide receiver. Your route has to look the same every single time so you're 100% off the line. It's just a lot that goes into it, a lot of thinking. And back when I played, when people said football players aren't smart, I probably wouldn't have argued it as much as now, like, being an adult and looking back at it and seeing what these 10, 11-year-olds are able to grasp as far as a playbook and remembering it. And it just amazes me. And like I said, I'm under the belief now that actually some of the smartest kids out there are the football players. It's funny. I started seeing, especially maybe the past few years, you start seeing teams when it comes to playbooks, maybe setting up a playbook in Madden so everybody knows this is the play that you're going to run. Or sometimes, you know, people getting the tablets and having all the plays set up in it. I always thought that's a unique transition instead of the old hardback playbook that people would end up having to read. I feel like that's a great way of integrating knowledge of, okay, this is the play you're going to need to run. This is what you need to do. Especially, I feel like that's something that works a lot better now, especially with technology coming through. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, With the playbooks and everything like that. So many kids like travel in the summer, they have obligations. So being able to have a Facebook group or just a playbook out there where they can go and actually check it out 
it has come a long way as opposed to making a kid responsible for carrying around the binder with the place. Kids lose things and everything like that. So times have definitely changed. And uh, you have to kind of adjust with the times. And you have to put the plays and the everything out there because we've run so many different formations. We want to keep it fresh for the kids. And we just want them to be at practice and be encouraged because if you're at practice and you really don't know what's going on, it's going to discourage you a little bit. You're not going to be able to go as hard as you like. So we just try to do a little bit extra so the kids feel comfortable. They know what's going on. We don't want anybody discouraged. We believe in encouraging kids all the time. So that's just one of the little things to help. But Playbook has definitely evolved. Do you feel that, especially nowadays, especially with the growth and explosion of different offenses, that is slowly starting to find its way into the youth football leagues? More exotic formations, the spreads, the three and four wide receiver things, as opposed to the old eye formation and just sort of three yards in a cloud of dust type thing? Well, absolutely. Um, we play travel football. So last year we went to Florida, and a lot of these teams and programs are funded by former NFL players, former college guys. Everybody wants to win national championships. So outside of being the most physical team on the field, how else can you do it mentally? So they started instilling these NFL plays and stuff they were running, and you play in these teams, and everybody realizes now they got to keep up. Same thing with us. We went to Florida, and the defensive line was stunning. They um, were running a lot of RPO stuff motion from the eye formation and doing little uh, quarterback bootlegs and dumping it at the tight end and that's stuff that you don't see around here you never saw around here playing eye formation you do your power you do your quick pitch you might do a reverse and like no you have to step up your game as far as the play call and then what you have your kids even practicing because a lot of times you can get on the field and if your team's not prepared and they come out in three or four wides and you're in a four four your kids are looking at each other like do i go out and cover him do i so you got to cover your bases in practice. What is the toughest offense to game plan for? I've always seen, especially my time as a reporter, when I covered a lot of Salisbury University, they always said the option was the toughest thing to always prepare for. And I've also seen like the wing tee. Those are things that were always challenging to opposing defenses, especially game planning. The option, I actually agree, is one of the toughest things to cover. But now, kind of the new wave is everybody running this jet sweep and RPO stuff that the Eagles actually run. If you have a quarterback and a running back back there that it looks the same every single time, that's really, really tough to defend because now you're asking 10- and 11-year-olds to not get confused, to always be at home. One slip-up, and you know they can take that 60 yards because they're reading that defensive end. So right now, I'd say that RPO is probably the toughest thing to defend in youth football now. How different was the offenses that you guys ran at Y High compared to what you're coaching now at, at with the Salisbury Rhinos? We ran the wing tee at Y High, three running backs. Um, it was pretty simple. I kind of knew if I was going in motion, I was going to get the ball, and that was really it, not too many passing plays. Now it's actually the exact opposite. Like a lot of the stuff we're running now, I had no idea about in high school. It's picking up stuff along the way, being a football junkie, and just it's way different. And um, it's actually challenging for me as a coach as well because this is something I haven't been doing my whole life as far as a playbook. We ran the wing tee, so I'm adjusting just like the kids are. What is the game planning like heading into a week of a game? Um, I'll spend probably two days watching film on the team we're going to play, putting my notes down, what they run out of a certain formation, if they have any tells. I watch all the kids. I watch probably every play about 15 times. I'm watching every single person on the line to see if anybody has any tells for, from every play. Then we're going to practice, and I'm letting the kids know what we see, and then I'm letting them watch it 
so they can see for themselves, but we don't have to watch it so many times that I can talk them through it of what I've already seen so they're comfortable. Other than that, it's making sure we have a game plan of what we're going to run to beat what they do. Like, we have a playbook, but on certain teams, we may not run certain plays. It may just be six or seven plays for a team to offset what that team's trying to do. With younger kids, how do you try to keep them engaged when it comes to film watching? Because especially the perception is nowadays that kids nowadays don't have as big as an attention span as we'd like them to have, or as opposed to what we had when we were growing up. How do you feel like the biggest thing is to keep them engaged with that? Short spurts. The kids do get restless. So I can't expect them to sit there and watch a 45-minute game straight. So we'll watch, you know, two possessions, and then we'll stop, and we'll talk about it on the whiteboard. Hey, what would you see? What what players stood out to you? I give the guys, like my offensive line, they're watching the defensive line. My defensive line is watching other teams' offensive line. So I ask those guys questions. Hey, what would you see from the center? Where would he go? And just keeping them engaged. Yeah, you can't keep them there for a long period of time because the attention span is uh, short. But just try to give it to them in short intervals and making sure we're maximizing our time, not letting them get off track. Because you know kids, how if they start having side conversations, it's kind of hard to bring them back. So just try to make sure we have some structure. When it comes to game day, what is the mode like? What is the mood and the atmosphere like, especially those few hours leading up to kickoff? Dominate. I understand it's youth football, but also it's travel youth football. And it's like I said, it's really, really serious. Other places, I think it's just trickling down now to the shore. And a lot of our kids now are seeing that I had the chance to go to Florida and they're seeing like, hey, this is legit. If this is something I want to do, not necessarily going to the NFL. But competing at the highest level, compete with other people, that's definitely what's going to go into it. Speaking of the uh, Salisbury Rhinos, trying to get a little insight about the Salisbury Rhinos. What is the purpose of the team and the organization? And what does that consist of, especially, I guess, different youth levels and age groups and things like that? Yeah, we have a 8U, a 10U, 12U, and 14U. The Rhinos, like I said, was started. Our president, Carlos Stanley, he had the same vision that all of us have, and that's how we're all on one accord. Letting everybody know Salisbury has some talent. Like, we can go to Florida, we can go to Las Vegas, we can go to Arizona, little kids from the shore, and actually be able to compete. But on the flip side of that, it's not just about football. We want to teach the kids life skills, like job training, how to change a tire, just anything. And so that's really where it started, just seeing a need in our area for the youth. Are there any notable alumni from the Salisbury Rhinos that have gone on to have careers, especially big high school careers, going on to college, playing football, or even just going to college in general? I understand it always doesn't have to be about the game of football itself. This is actually our second year. It's not a long 10-year program. It really is just our second year. So our first group of kids are actually going to be freshmen next year, going to a couple of schools. But our actual coaching staff, we have Wayne Warren on there. He actually played quarterback at Wahai, ended up starting safety at Rutgers his last two years. We've got DJ Jones, who played uh, defensive back for Salisbury University. Naka Bitek, who played running back for Salisbury University. John Coleman, who started off at the University of Maryland, ended up at uh, Salisbury University. We've got Damian Miles. All of our coaches, for the most part, have some type of college football experience and in some cases, arena league football experience. How do you feel that that makes the kids saying, okay, these guys know their stuff. They're credible. We should listen to them. Yeah, the parents know we're invested because we could be doing other things. And um, we came together just for this reason. And once the parents see the commitment from us as coaches, naturally, you know, you want 
son that have the best instruction. Not saying we're the best coaches or we know more than anybody else, but the experience and everything that guys have, I really think it helps. It really helps, you know, with the kids and the parents. See, we're serious, so they bring their kids out. They see we're committed, they commit. So having those guys on the staff was big. Like, you know, Wayne doesn't hang his hat on the fact that he went to Rutgers, was a start in safety, or was a top-rated quarterback in our area. He doesn't hang his hat on that. If that helps get a kid that wants to learn the game to our team, he's all for it. But he's not going to berate a kid and say, hey, you need to listen to me because I played Division One safety. Like, no, we just want to teach the kids. And like I said, it, it helps with uh, getting the kids to come. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest things that's been talked about the past decade when it comes to youth football is safety and proper technique and things like that. I know that has been huge, and I know things like USA Football have been created to do that, especially as they've seen it sort of translate into the NFL, especially I think the biggest thing is the highlight hits and the things like jacked up that you would see on ESPN a long time mm-hmm. ago. Those yeah. used to be the norm. How important is it, especially stressing the need for proper technique and playing football safer? It's very important because wrong technique or anything like that could actually end the kid's life or, you know, alter it dramatically. So um, we're big on technique and doing everything right. If we only get the one drill in practice because we're teaching the technique, but every kid get it, we'll take that all the time. And with the, um, the safety with concussion and wanting your kid to be safe, we actually use Zenith shoulder pads. We use Zenith helmets, which are the second highest uh, safety rated helmet for youth football and parents love that because at the same time you want your son to play but you understand on the flip side football is a very violent sport they let kids play but football is a grown man sport it's a car crash every single play essentially you run into a kid full speed and so safety first and so we're big on and we're actually proud of using zenith and going the extra step because of course it's more expensive than everything else but it goes back to our commitment for the kids. The parents really see that we are committed to these kids. We're not just out there getting 25 or $30 helmets just because we want to say we have a team. Like, no, we really are investing and spending the money. What do you feel is the biggest technique that is the one that may cause the most damage if not done correctly? Tackling. Not just tackling, but breaking down. A lot of kids, you know, they have the energy and they're willing to go full speed into it. And you like that commitment as a coach but at the same time you know it's not something that's sustainable when you're going to meet a guy in the hole you don't you don't necessarily have to go full speed you get there as quick as you can break down drop your hips explode up through the tackle you're going to get more of a i guess a positive tackle than if you were coming full speed he's coming full speed and both lower your heads somebody's next broke the other guy has a concussion i i feel better about you know teaching the technique that's definitely tackling yeah i think especially it's starting to show in the pros that a lot of people are just going for the hit and not wrapping up. And I feel like that can, and you see a lot of big plays that could have easily been stopped early if they just wrapped and drove. And I am far from a football person. I, I only played a year, but the little bit I sort of remember is you definitely want to drive with your shoulder. You want to wrap and, yep. and try not to leave with your head too much. Yeah, absolutely. I think what's happened with that, it started with, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Madden football game. They've got what's called a hit stick. Yeah. Where you just come up and you just lay the guy out. And so that's what everybody thinks it is. If I run up to this guy full speed and just throw my shoulder into him, it's going to make a loud noise and the guy's going to fall. The crowd's going to go, ooh, that's cool. But if you look at how many tackles are actually missed for guys that are going for the big hit as opposed to tackles that are actually missed by guys who are doing it the right way, the numbers are crazy. Like Luke Keekley, for example, no big-time hits, 
I let you know he had a couple on slants and everything last year, but he's actually the most fundamentally sound tackler in the NFL based on the data as far as breaking down and not putting his body at risk while still also not missing tackles as opposed to um, a guy like Shaquille Barrett who is actually one of the worst at wrapping up. He's going for the big plays all the time. He calls himself a headhunter. So you can kind of see both ends of the spectrum and so that's what we just want more Luke Keekleys. When I always think of big hits, I always look at the Sean Taylor hit on Brian Mormon in the Pro Bowl. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And even then, everybody said that's a clean hit, but it's just mm-hmm. the fact that you see how the sound, you see the violence of it, but and all in all, everybody will say, still looking back, that's a clean hit. And just looking back at Sean Taylor, he's maybe had a hit or two that you know you might sort of like, wow, now it would be maybe deemed a little legal, especially with the speed of the game. Mm-hmm. And you want the kids to adjust as well. Um, you know that being and being a headhunter doesn't really is not aging well with the NFL and the direction it's going. Like Vontez Burfitt. They suspended him. I don't know how many times they take his money. And you work that hard to get to the NFL. You want to keep your money. You want generations and generations of your family to have wealth and invest it properly. You don't want to give it back because you didn't pay attention in tackling drills as far as breaking down. You just wanted to go for the headshots. So um, football is definitely gearing away toward taking that out of the game. And we just want to be ahead of the curve as far as getting the kids situated with that as well. You know, so they know now so they can go up and compete with a high level and not having a coach having to take a month of his time to teach this kid to tackle properly. He knows, okay, when we play for the Rhinos, he knows how to tackle. We know that. That's out the way. I know you talk about traveling and going to the games. And when I first met you, you were doing a fundraiser. What are ways that people can donate and contribute to the Rhinos? And what other fundraisers are you guys doing throughout the uh, summer? Yeah, um, we have a cash app. It's uh, dollar sign Salisbury Rhinos. That's it for cash app. We have free football camps June 15th. We have a football camp with a local high school, James and Bennett. Uh, About a month ago, we did a football camp with Parkside High School. So our goal is to kind of get all the high schools in our area on board and have camp. We charge the kids $10, so we do that. We also have a 20 for 20 fundraiser. And what that is, we handed out packets to all our kids. Hey, get as many people as you can to donate $20 to you for the rental because we like I said we are going to Florida we got a couple other places we're going and what that fundraiser does it actually covers the cost of the kids travel and the hotel because Florida is actually in December and what we ran into is a lot of parents had to make decisions I want to give my kid a nice Christmas or I don't want him to go to Florida for this experience and so learning from that we just fundraise so they don't have to make that decision they know that hey their kids are taken care of you'll have to send them with some food money but in December, we're not going to come to you saying, hey, it's going to be three or $400 for them to stay in a hotel for a week and to get to Florida. So that's you know why we fundraise every weekend. It's for these kids. And I know, especially in the Salisbury area, there's so many different youth programs. You're dealing with the Fruit and Falcons. Of course, the Rhinos, you have the different things. And Del Mar, you also have Salvation Army and things like that. And I feel like sometimes it can be a little tough fighting for a dollar, especially when it comes to going around the community and asking for donations and things like that. And I know it's always a little tough, one, especially you have so many different competing interests. Mm-hmm. It definitely is. But we look at it like it's enough room for everybody. Like we need positive role models that are going to be teaching these kids the game so we don't look at it like oh man they're stepping on our foot no we look at it like okay this is our lane we do travel football with these kids we just need to fundraise and then once people see you actually out there working hard for it they come and support 
We have people that play at the Salvation Army or in Delmar. Delmar's awesome, by the way. That's an awesome football town. You've got guys from there. They come and they know we have a fundraiser. They'll drop off 20 bucks, $40, just saying, here, keep up the good work. So it, once people see you putting in the work and actually know you're committed, everybody kind of gets on board, just like we do. For another program, you know, we see, hey, man, they're really committed. They're doing a great job. They're having a bake sale. Let me go buy two brownies, you know, leave my change or something like that. So once you start putting the work in, everybody kind of gets behind and starts pulling in the right direction. Maybe not at first, but it always gets to that point as long as you stay positive and keep working. Sometimes people see the skepticism. They want to make sure that their money is going to something where they can actually see the benefits and results. I always go back, especially going to UMES a long time ago. Everybody always wanted to donate to bring the football team back years and years ago. A lot of times, especially in the early 90s, that was a big thing. Everybody wanted to donate their money. When they felt like the money wasn't going to bring football back, people nowadays are gun-shy about trying to donate. Yeah, absolutely. But it's the same thing with everything else. If you come take over a store, you're the manager, and the manager before you got fired for stealing money. When you go in there to that store, everybody, even though you haven't done anything or anything like that, everybody already has that perception. Oh, I wonder if he's going to be like the last guy. How do you change that narrative when you come up and you're working and people just see, like they can see it. Last year we went to Florida, and um, from the fundraiser, we paid for the kids' rooms, we paid for the parents' rooms, we put players in there so that wasn't a cost that had to be passed on to them and once parents see stuff like that and people in the community see stuff like that they're like man those guys didn't have to do that they could have you know of the parents because it's something that we wanted everybody a part of they helped us fundraise this money they can't they bought their kids to practice we're all family like i said we do for one another um so once you've done it and people constantly see that they're like okay I know his character. I know what that program's about, what they're going to do. They provide for those kids. So I trust that my money's going where it's supposed to do with him. And now the program is open to kids of all ages around the area? Yes, it's um, from 6 to 14. There's no weight limit. And like I said, yeah, from all over the area, you don't have to live in Salisbury. You know, if you want to come play, you definitely come play. You can show up at one of our free football camps on Saturday at 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Waterside Park. We have a block and sled. We got some great coaches. All you have to do is bring your kids out there and see if they like it first. I never, when a parent just brings a kid out there, I never give them the sign-up packet and just let them do it based off emotion. I want them to actually bring their kid to a camp, talk to him that night afterwards just to make sure, you know, what he likes. Cause some kids might not be truthful in front of a coach, like if they didn't like something or anything like that. So um, I like to let the kids get a free camp out, and then I talk to the parents the next day. Just to, you know, confirm they had a good time and make sure they want to sign up. And I understand that completely. And I feel like one of the biggest things, and I go back to my time, like playing briefly a year of JB football, I got sort of into the mix well late into tryouts and things like that. And, you know, most of the times the tryouts are like August 15th. Here I am coming in early September, having no idea, never played football before. I wouldn't say I got disenchanted with it. It's just like, I have no idea what's going on. It's you're, you're sort of really lost in the sauce. And maybe some people it's easier to sort of get caught up and acclimated very quickly. But to me, I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. I mean, I'm going through the practice. I wouldn't say I was going through the motions cause I was enthusiastic, but when you sort of don't know what's going on, it's like, okay, what am I going to do? And it can end up wearing on you. Absolutely. And that's why another reason we do the free camps, because like you said, I'm using your um, situation where you came in the football in the middle of September, you'd never played. So now not only are you trying to figure out the plays and where you're supposed to be, 
you're also trying to protect yourself so that guy up there doesn't kill you because you don't know what he knows as far as technique and getting low and stuff like that. So that's why we have the camps to teach these kids proper techniques, three-point stance, everything. Everybody learns everything, no matter what position you're going to play. If you're 80 pounds, you're still going to go with the lineman to get into a three-point stance because you're going to go on to a high school program after this, and we don't want a coach to have to take time from practice to develop you. We want the coaches to know when you get a rhino off, he knows what's going on. I always thought that's a good idea. It sort of makes me think of how interesting Bill Belichick cross-trains all his coaches, even if they're going to be a defensive coordinator. I want you to know how the offensive line works and things like that. And I think that's a good thing. You just sort of cross-training everybody for everything because, like you said, an 80-pounder could all of a sudden have like a huge growth spurt. And then now they find themselves playing defensive line. But it's like, I never played defensive line because I was so small and I was only playing running back. But now they're sort of adjusted and acclimated to the position. At least they have a working knowledge of it. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And that Bill Belichick thing is, like I said, he's one of the guys that when I got into coaching, um, I'm not naive to think that I know everything about football. I learn every day. I study down to coaches' press conferences. Like, you never know what jewels you'll pick up there. And Bill Belichick is actually one of my favorite, even though I'm a huge Dolphins fan. I respect how he goes about it. And that cross-training with the coaches, I think, is awesome. And, I, like, again, we try to do the same thing with the kids because you're right. That lineman that's 150 pounds now, he may slim up and be one of the fastest kids around. So our linemen go through the running back drills. This is how you get in the stands. And so, yeah, I definitely agree with that. That Bill Belichick, I, that's awesome. Have you had a kid that has, like, a huge growth spurt from one year to the next where, like, wow, it doesn't even look like it's the same kid? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm seeing that now. When you come in, you know, because the kids have been gone for about three or four months since the season ends, and a lot of people play basketball and everything. And I've seen a couple of kids, and I had to double tape. And I get over there, you can tell their arms are dangly now, getting long, or their chest are spreading. I got kids that got mustaches now coming in, and so, yeah, they're definitely growing. I know you mentioned you were a Dolphins fan, so I'm assuming you go all the way back to the Dan Marino days. Dan Marino's the best football player ever put on shoulder pads. What do you feel was... The biggest thing that Dan Marino should have had in order to get a Super Bowl ring. I know that's something that's always been discussed about he's one of the greatest players not to have a ring. And I feel like that he was missing something. Do you think it was a running game? That was something that was always talked about over the years. He needed a good running game and things like that. But what do you feel like was the biggest thing that Dan Marino should have had in order to get a Super Bowl ring? A defense. You're right about the running back. The offensive line to a degree as well. We had some decent receivers. Um... Defense won championships. The Ravens uh, approved that. He had Zach Thomas early in his career and Jason Taylor, but they were young, and they weren't the guys they were. He never had a defense. We couldn't stop the pass. We couldn't get to the quarterback. And, like, that was just one of the defense. I feel like there's so much more that I haven't touched on that you think that people should know, not even just about the Rhinos, but in particular that anybody who has a kid who is interested in starting playing football wherever they are. Absolutely. I feel like it's important for kids to play. Football is physically and mentally challenging. It's a very, very, very hard sport to play. And consistently, you know, over the years especially, it's just going to get harder and harder. If a kid can play football, if they're invested in it, and they have a good coaching staff, from what I've seen, those kids that get bad grades are constantly getting phone calls home to the parents. That goes down talking back to parents and everything, everything goes down because the right football coach there, the right discipline and still there. Unfortunately, a lot of the kids that we actually have are from single parent homes and women, they do a great job raising us. You know, my dad wasn't there as well. So, um, 
they do a great job raising us, but it's certain things that a woman can't teach her son. And if a right coach, that discipline, I'm telling you, it changed mine. I'll never forget. I wasn't the best kid in school. My mom was at a parent-teacher conference. She had put me on punishment. She beat me. She tried to get in contact with my dad to get him involved. And, like, she, I remember her breaking down crying, saying she didn't know what else to do. It was like, you know, I don't know what else to do with him. And she took me to football, and that really changed my life. Not just because of any accomplishments I actually got to do on the field. Now, first thing in the morning, I want to be the first one up. My son's the same way. And, like, a lot of this stuff was instilled in me from football. The toughness to, oh, I got laid off from this job. I remember I got ran over in football in ninth grade. I had to get up and get back, and we ran the same play again. I stood in there, I did my job, and it worked out better for me next time. I just got to work a little bit harder. And it really has helped with my mindset, and I think it helped with kids. So like I said, if you've got that kid out there that's having some trouble or has a lot of energy, I really think you should give him a football shot, as long as you put the right program and the right person teaching them. And only you can be the judge of that as opposed to what your child needs. What are your thoughts on being specialized in sports? I know playing just one particular sport, there's a lot of talk that it's better to have them play three or four sports or things like that as opposed to being solely dedicated to one sport, especially you help reduce the possibility of injuries of just one particular sport. Like if you have a kid that plays football, you have a plays basketball, plays baseball or lacrosse and things like that. What is your take on that? I don't think you should specialize in one sport until you're getting paid for it or you get a college scholarship for it. You just never know what you're going to be good at as well. There's been so many football players who turn out to be good baseball players, or baseball players who turn out to be good basketball players, or what's really big now is actually lacrosse. And so I always want kids to challenge themselves and do different sports and also work different muscles. Playing football, training year-round, you're going to work with the same muscles every single practice, and it's going to you know wear and tear on you. Make different friends. You just never know. You could be a football player your whole life, but your best friend, could end up being the kid you play lacrosse with that's going to have a Fortune 500 company. That's a relationship you have that may open up another door for you. So I definitely recommend that you should play as many sports as you can while you can. And I know you also mentioned lacrosse, and I think a lot of people don't remember or know, of course, Jim Brown played lacrosse in addition to playing football at Syracuse. And some people say he was a better lacrosse player than he was a football player. And that's saying a lot about Jim Brown, especially I always think you were talking about Barry Sanders. The year that he ran for 2,000 yards – Barry Sanders' dad still said that Jim Brown was the greatest running back he ever saw. Yeah, I remember that. I've heard that circle of times. But again, in lacrosse, you're doing the same thing. Uh, you can be hit. I know they like those kids' wrist up. Sudden movements, the juke, everything. Like, like, that can translate to football. If you're a good football player and you're shifty or elusive, play lacrosse. I think it'll help with anti coordination and everything like that. Because catching that ball in the net's the toughest thing. I think to me, and I have a lot of respect for those guys. And it's something I actually wish I, I was one of those guys that I only played football or basketball. I trained for football. I played basketball because my friends did. And I just wish I tried different. So I wish I ran track. I definitely wish I played lacrosse, soccer. Just So don't limit yourself. I feel like sometimes the biggest thing is especially just trying to find a balance between time because some seasons end up running parallel unless yeah. you're going to play football in the day and then basketball in the evening or soccer in the afternoon or so. I feel like the biggest thing, especially I think as adults, we start seeing it. There's never enough time in the world. As kids, you don't think about it and you think you want time to go by. I think as you mentioned a little bit earlier, but now as an adult, it's like, wow, where does the time go? Especially you go into work, then you go home. If you do another activity, then you got to go to sleep. And next thing you know, it's the next day. Oh yeah, absolutely. But again, that's one of the things that come with being a uh, 
a parent. Once you have kids, you realize, like, it's not about your life anymore. It's about them. I'm not saying you got to run yourself ragged, but those sacrifices that our parents were telling us about, it wasn't just financially, everything like that. It's that stuff. Because looking back at him, you know, my stepdad worked two jobs, and he would take his lunch break just to come home to take me to practice. Not thinking as a kid, I'm sitting there at the door like, man, I'm going to be late. What's he doing? He's being inconsiderate. And now being an adult, doing it for my son, like, hey, you could get caught in that red light. But when it's turning red, you're willing to run it because, hey, I got to get my kid to practice. You get no satisfaction out of that. But that's an investment in your kids. And so that's just what it comes down to. It's just once you have the kids, it being about them. Yeah, I think that realization, once you get older, it's like, man, your parents did so much for you. And it's funnier, the older you get, you start turning into your parents. The certain Absolutely. things you say, <laughs> the certain things you do, and it's mm-hmm. just absolutely crazy that man you wouldn't have thought this like 25 30 years ago because mm-hmm. most of the time some people are like i don't want to ever be like my parents and then find out yeah, <laughs> yeah oh yeah i'm, I'm my stepdad 100 percent down to the three pair of sweatpants i wear everywhere i'm him 100 percent. so i definitely agree with that but um it's not something that I would change in the world like being younger but oh i'm not gonna be like them but actually older now i'm glad man that i came up like he took care of the family he made sure we had a roof over our head we were provided for i just hope to be half the man he was and so you know we try to run away from it but the more and more you're around the person they're doing the right thing they're going to rub off on you and have a big influence on your life well tj i do appreciate all your help and you coming out to the podcast and participating in this interview and shining a little bit more light on the salisbury rhinos what are ways that people can not only reach out to you but mm-hmm. to the rhinos itself, uh, social media and things along those lines. Yeah, yeah. On um, Facebook, we have a Salisbury Rhino on page. On Facebook, I'm TJ Bryant. We also have a website, www.thesalisburyrhinos.com. We're always at Waterside Park on Saturdays by Brew River if you want to stop by there. But that's the main way is Facebook. Again, I'm TJ Bryant. Um, if you send me a message, it comes straight to my phone, and I will reply. Well, TJ, I do appreciate it. And I look forward to having you on again just to talk a little more about football and a little more about sports. Like I said, it's very good that you guys doing this stuff with the travel teams and letting these kids get a different exposure to what it's like, especially the game of football, something that's very universal. But where you go by region, it's such a different thing sometimes. And I do appreciate it. No, it's no problem. Again, man, thank you for the platform. This has been an awesome experience, man. Hey, yeah, who thank knew you. a chance meeting at the Sam's Club, just seeing what you yeah. guys were doing really ended up leading to something like this. You never know. Can I tell you a story real, real quick? Oh, yeah. I know we met, we met at the Sam's Club, so we met you, and we met a family that just moved down here from Alabama the week before, right after we met you. His mom bought him out. He's now part of our team. After that, we had a registered nurse who was like, yeah, I want him to play, but I'm never at home to take him to practice. Turns out, talking back and forth, she lives right around the corner from me. So we have her son as well. So we were three for three that day. I tell you, the little things, people never think about how little chance meetings end up meaning so much. You just never know when it happens. Absolutely. But again, man, I thank you for the platform, man. I really enjoyed my time. I'd like to thank my guest, TJ Bryant, for his time being a part of this interview. If you know anyone that might find this episode of interest, don't forget to share. You can also find previous episodes of the Sports Refuge podcast at Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else podcasts are heard. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.